Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this week's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer takes a moment looking at what brings us to unity. When you look at the United States of America, you find that America did not come together in unity organically. It has united together through a lot of effort and sacrifice. Our freedom unites us. As we look in God's Word today, we see Jesus unites us through the work of the cross and resurrection. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message, Melting Pot. As you can tell, our text this morning is going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. It's at the, toward the very end of your Bible, toward the end of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3. This morning we're talking about the subject of the melting pot. Now that's not an unfamiliar term to us as Americans. We are, after all, called the melting pot. And that term came from a play that was written a long time ago during the immigration boom of the United States during the late 1800s and early 1900s. And in that play called The Melting Pot, it's a story about a young Jew named David who is escaping the pogroms of Eastern Europe with the persecution as they're being thrown off of their land. And he comes to America and he finds this young girl named Vera and he falls in love with her. But he discovers that unity isn't something that just happened automatically. America didn't just melt together organically, that it took effort but that it can be achieved when we find that despite our diverse beliefs and backgrounds, we, have a, we can find a common ground and live harmoniously with one another. In a melting pot, you mix a number of unlike things together to make it better. For instance, copper, the metal that we find inside our wires, it's very flexible, right? Um, if you were to make a sword out of copper, you're not gonna win a lot of battles. There was no copper age where people are fighting with copper weapons. Uh, Likewise, there was no tin age, also a soft metal. Uh, Just for the same reason that we never had a rubber weapon age. You know, you're not winning a lot of battles that way, but if you take a soft metal like copper and a soft metal like tin, you put them together and what do you get? You get bronze, and there actually was a bronze age. You take these two softer, unlike metals, you combine them together into something stronger, more valuable, and more useful than they are by themselves. And that's what the United States was supposed to be. People of all kinds of diverse backgrounds, cultures, races, socioeconomic status, and we come together unlike, but yet unified by a common document in the Constitution of the United States. And that is what the church was meant to be. We're an alloy. That's what, that's what bronze is, it's an alloy. We're meant to take people from all kinds of diverse backgrounds, doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter if you are poor by American standards, if you are wealthy by American standards, doesn't matter if you're white, black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, it doesn't matter you know, big, tall, beautiful, or less attractive, it doesn't matter what you're wearing today, if you came to sh- church in a three-piece suit and tie, or if you came to church you know, in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt, it doesn't matter. Okay, God takes all these different kinds of people together and he puts us together and he melts us together to be a single unified whole. And do we have a unifying document? We do, don't we? It's called the Bible. We find unity there. We don't have to be the same. We don't even have to agree on the same things either, do we? Do you agree with everything else that other Americans agree with? 
I mean, are Americans in complete unanimous agreement on all issues? Clearly we don't. That's why we have several different news networks. Likewise, in the church, do we have to agree on everything? I mean, do y'all have to agree on, you know, the things that we do, the times that we have things, the type of pews we sit on, the color of the carpet, what kind of food we serve at our fellowships? Do we have to agree on those things? No, but we have to be agreeable. We have to unify around what's most important. Our constitution, our central unifying document here, we've got to unify on that. Colossians 3.11, Paul said, here in the church, he says, there's no Gentile or Jew, which is a big statement to say because the Jews kind of felt like they had a copyright on the truth. In the church, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. Aren't you glad we don't have a section like that in church? Circumcised over here, uncircumcised over here. That would make for an awkward service. But you, you didn't do that. You didn't have the, you know, are you following the Old Testament law and are you not? You didn't have a church divided by barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, he says, but Christ is all and in all. That the church isn't about you as an individual. It's about Christ, who is all. And the is a neat thing, he is also in all. All who claim the name of Christ, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter where you came up, came up from, doesn't matter if you've ever been to church before, the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you're one of his children, and you are on equal terms with everybody in this church. Doesn't matter if you've been here for, this is your first Sunday, or if you've been here for 45 years. We're on equal footing around the cross. That's what he's saying. He says, doesn't matter if you're a barbarian. You know where the term barbarian came from? Barbarian was any non-Greek-speaking person because back in the Greek empire, if you didn't speak Greek, you were looked down on. In fact, you didn't speak Greek, they just kind of mocked you in how you spoke. The word barbarian actually comes from scorning people by how you speak because to a Greek-speaking person, you sounded like bar, 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 and they called them barbarians. Scythians were the worst of the barbarians. They were these, these argumentative, kind of battle-worn, aggressive people. And so Scythians were seen as very uncivilized, uncouth, uncultured, uneducated, unlike us Greeks. And then if you had slaves, that was the lowest possible standing in society. That refers more to your socioeconomic status because slaves in the Bible, don't think Alex Haley's roots, Okay, don't, don't think early colonization. When a, a slave to the Jew, the slaves that are being described in the Bible, these are people who are down on their luck. They're people who have bankrupted themselves. They have nothing. And all they can do is indenture themselves as a servant to somebody for a period of time. And then after about seven years or so, they get released back into the world. They get a mulligan. They get to start life over again with this chunk of money. But people would look down on them. Oh, you're people that failed in life. You don't have the money we have. And so slaves were looked down upon a lot of times. And Paul's saying here, it doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, circumcised, not circumcised, you're, you're barbarian, you're a Scythian, or you're a slave. Here in the church, we put all of that baggage aside and we're equals. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we don't leverage our position out there here in the church. And that's what unity looks like. We set aside those things. We don't exalt ourselves. We're not high-minded thinking that we're better than somebody else because I have more money. I'm better than somebody else because I had more education. I'm better than somebody else because I didn't make some of the same mistakes that they did. And that's what the church is intended to be. And so 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12, we're going to find that this is a church that's combining a lot of unlike people together. You see, 1 Peter was written to churches scattered across Asia, and they're encountering different cultures, different peoples, unlike peoples. They're not like me. It's not like living in the land of Israel. 
And these are people who are being persecuted. This is during the Nero's reign. If you know anything about Nero, he was, he was not a good fellow. Uh, this is the guy that took Christians and threw them to the lions. This is the guy that would, would soak Christians in different flammable materials, and then he would light them as living wicks at his garden parties. This was not a good time to be a Christian. And so when he's writing this, he's encouraging Christians, the least we can do as a church is to be a safe haven. For all those people out there in the world getting burnt alive and who are being fed to lions, who are being persecuted, who have had to leave their land, their refugees in this area, bring them in as equals within the church. And then he's going to show us in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verses 8 through 12 how we can achieve that kind of unity. The kind of unity you're not going to see out there in the world, but the kind of unity that people must see within the church. We're going to see, first of all, that unity begins with who we are as a person. He says in verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Who is this addressed to here? How does your text begin? He says, all of you. All of you. And so there's nobody here in this church under the sound of this preaching that this doesn't apply to. This is for all of us as a church. He's calling all of us, not a few of us, not some of us. A church is truly unified when we all join together with this purpose in mind to be a unified bunch. Unity of mind, he said, is the, it's the Greek word homo phronis. Homo, we know that from like homosexual, it's the same, same sex. Um, homo means the same. Phronis uh, is the word that means the mind or to think. It means that we choose to think the same, that we're uniting around a truth. We said earlier, our central unifying truth is the Bible. Now, the founding fathers unified under a central truth, didn't they? Is it because they were all the same and they agreed on everything? No, I'm, I'm sure there were tremendous arguments and discussions that were taking place at the foundation of our nation. The people who signed that document, the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution and things like that, these, these are people from widely different political views, not Republican and Democrat back then, those didn't exist. Okay, you had Federalists and Anti-Federalists, ones who wanted big government and smaller government. They didn't always see eye to eye. And you had people from all different kinds of religious backgrounds. You had Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, Anglican. You had all kinds of different backgrounds. But you know what? They could come together and they can sign this document that unifies them. If America can do that as a nation, how are we as a church not going to unite around our unifying document? What is that saying if we won't? And so the next thing he says is we have to be sympathetic toward one another. Sympathos. It means the same pain. That uh, the Bible tells us that we need to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, right? Now what Romans tells us. That when, we, when something good happens to somebody, our first response is, why didn't I get that? Our thought is, you know, you're a brother in Christ. If it's, if it's happening good for you, I'm happy. That's, it's like it's blessing me. When something bad is happening to somebody, somebody's hurting, they're suffering, they're struggling, we come together as a church and we help one another. We weep with those who weep. We don't say, well, I'll be warmed and filled. I'm going to go off and watch the game in my living room. We help one another. This is sympathy, that we're able to feel what others feel. It's not just about me and how I feel. It's about you and how you feel. Then there's brotherly love. He calls us to brotherly love. The words phileo adelphos. Phileo 
is a brotherly love. Adelphos is a, is a brother. So there's a love of the brothers. We get the word Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, the place you know where they drafted our constitution. They signed the Declaration of Independence. Philadelphia, founded by William Penn, a place of tolerance for one another. And by the way, that's a big word today, isn't it? What is true tolerance? It's not that we all are forced to agree. That's not tolerance. True tolerance is when we allow other people to disagree. It's okay to disagree with one another, and can we still be unified as a nation? We must, and that's the only way we'll be unified. We're never all gonna disagree on everything. True tolerance is when you are okay that somebody disagrees with you, and you still behave in a loving way toward them. Then he says we need to have a tender heart. This is a word, a Greek word meaning good bowels. Does that need some explanation? <laughs> By the way, it has nothing to do with bran flakes. Uh, good bowels, a tender heart. The Jew, or the Greeks rather, felt that every emotion in the body was tied to a body part. Like for your heart, that blood pumping organism, uh, is, it was seen as the seat of strength and courage. Anger and uh, desire were tied, I don't know why, but to the liver. Okay, the liver, that's where that came from. And so with the bowels though, they saw it as a place of tender mercy and compassion because sometimes when you really feel something, you see it on TV, you see someone hurting, you can actually literally feel your insides move. And so they felt that that emotion was tied to your bowels. And so it means literally that you feel something so deeply for someone that their pain causes your insides to stir. The Bible says we're to have that kind of a tender heart and compassion toward one another. And then Peter calls us to a humble mind. If you remember that to be of the same mind was homophrones, this is similar, this is philophrone, okay? A philo is a friend, okay? And phrones, once again, means the mind. And so it means you have a mind to be a friend with others. You have a disposition that you naturally want to seek to have a good relationship with people. You don't come into a relationship hoping that you're gonna fight. You don't walk into church hoping you're gonna argue or hoping you're gonna complain. You don't walk into a restaurant expecting to be disappointed, expecting to yell at the waitress. You know, you're a philophronist. You have a friendly mind. Your disposition is to build bridges, to build relationships, and not to leave scorched earth behind you. He says that's what is required for unity. It means that with this philophronist, it means that we have a mind to make new friends, we see new people in the church. We see new people move in next door to us. We see new people at work. We want to be the first person to welcome them and encourage them. That's a unified bunch of people, people who are willing to accept people in from the outside who aren't like us, and we take them in anyway. My dad used to tell me stories. And you ever have parents tell you the same story over and over again? You know it's something that really impacted them in their life. And so one of the stories my dad would tell me with great frequency growing up is uh, my dad didn't have a lot of friends at school. He just came, he grew up kind of a tough home life. And so he grew up spending a lot of time with animals. He was a Boy Scout, and he decided at one point in time he's gonna raise pigeons. And so he built this like open air, like not chicken coop, but like a, what do you call it, a, a pigeon coop? Do those exist? He made one. So he's got this pigeon coop, and he takes in all these pigeons, and he goes in there, and he loved to be amongst them as they're flying around, and they would sit on him, and he would pet them, and he would feed them, and he cared for them. He protected them with this cage, and so he loved these dear little pigeons. They were his friends. Uh, and one day, he saw this little dove on the ground, and it wasn't moving. He thought, well, this is odd, and he kept approaching it, and it wouldn't move, and, and he realized it would kind of hobble. It had a broken wing. Now, he's no veterinarian, but he was a Boy Scout, so he's gonna give it his best try. And so somehow he splints the wing of this little 
dove has a broken wing, and he takes, my father took this little dove into his protection, and he took this little dove into this cage, and he placed this dove here, and he fed this dove from his hand, and he just, he loved this little dove, and he comes in and the next morning to see this sweet little dove and all of his little pigeons together, and you can probably guess what happened. Pigeons don't necessarily love doves because they're different, and he comes in, and the dove is on the ground, and the dove doesn't have a head. And it was just horrifying to me as a kid. I'm like, why are you telling me this story as a child? I mean, it horrified my nightmares to this day. I'll wake Amber up and ask to pray. You know, it, but there's this little dove. <clears throat> and it was just, it was so heartbreaking. And my dad told me that his initial feeling, his, his first initial, he didn't do it, but his initial response is, I want to wipe these pigeons out. How dare they come in and destroy this one who has come under my protection to receive my food, and you're going to peck him to death. Is there an illustration in there somewhere for the church? Can you strain real hard and find one? That God has a bunch of pigeons in here that he has called to himself, and he loves you dearly, and he feeds you, and he protects you, he takes you into his shelter called the church. And sometimes God brings little doves from the outside with broken wings, and they're not like us. They don't look like us. They don't smell like us. They don't act like us. Their, their coloration, their feather, their plumage, it's not like us. As a church, we can't be one of those that pecks them to death and makes them feel unwelcome. Because you're not like me. You don't have the money I have. You don't have the education I have. You don't act like I have. You don't dress the right way. What do you think God feels about these pigeons that won't take in people that don't look like them? I would argue that he probably has some of the same feelings my dad had. God wants his children to get along and to accept everybody of all kinds into his church. Because after all, this isn't our church, is it? This is his church. Jesus, the Bible says, is the head of the church. Doesn't belong to me, doesn't belong to you, doesn't belong to any of us. It's his head, and as his children, our job is to discern what his will is. And God's will is that we bring all the little broken-winged doves of the world, and we bring them into one place under his protection, and we feed them. Number two, unity is also what we say. Verse nine, he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Do you want the blessing of God in your life? God says he has called you to behave a certain way. How is that? He says, don't, don't repay evil for evil. evil. Repaying evil for evil is when you want immediate retribution. When you want immediate retribution on something. You want to go to a place in this church and see immediate retribution. Where would you go? Don't mention anybody's Sunday school class or anything like that. Uh, where would you go? You'd go down to the nursery, wouldn't you? You know, children repay evil for evil. You took my toy, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna take this toy, I'm gonna whop you over the head. That's how children respond to immediate pain. I have to act on this. Now, last time I checked, I haven't seen anybody hit anybody with a head, on the head over, with a toy yet this morning uh, because we're adults, we don't respond that way. And generally, we don't hit each other anymore, but what, what do we do if we're upset? We can hit each other with our words, don't we? And sometimes we'll just let our words run free. And the Bible gives us a warning about that in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. He said, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. They're wise. When we just let our words fly and we just share exactly how we feel, I don't like this, blah, and we just let people know I don't like this. I don't like this, and I complain. I don't like that guy, and we talk about him. We gossip. Bible says when we just let our words run free, transgression is not lacking. There is plenty of sin to be found. Instead, what does a wise person do? Somebody who is united to the wisdom of God and his word. They restrain their lips. Like David said, put a guard over my mouth, O Lord. 
He says, Peter says, we don't revile those that revile us. So even when somebody does break the, God's law and they revile you, they speak evil against you, we don't do it back. By the word, that word, uh, that word revile, it means evil speech that is intended to make people think less of you. It's an antonym for the word praise. Praise is when you choose to find something to talk about a person, who they are or what they've done, and you vocalize that so that other people will think highly of you. Did you see the work that our folks did this last week downstairs? Wow, that's praise, right? Reviling is when I, when I choose something, and it might be true. I choose something I don't like about you, or I choose something I don't like that you did, a decision you made, and I share that negativity with other people. That's reviling. I want you to dislike them as much as I do. The Bible says we don't revile for reviling. We don't make accusation against our brothers and sisters. Well, what if it's true? Does it make it okay? No, if, if it's true and you're saying it, it just means that you're both reviling and rude. And we, don't, we don't share things like that. There's, there's plenty of things that are true. We don't say to one another because we're smarter than that. You know? uh, what about if it's something that you would say to them if they were here to their face or something you've already said to their face? Is it now okay? Does God sort of release that now that we can share it with others? Well, I've, it's nothing I wouldn't have told him to his face. Does that make it okay now? No, it does not. It's still reviling. And we don't sit here and just, as a church, we can't be a unified church and spend our time accusing one another and getting mad about one another and complaining about one another. Who is it that complains and reviles the church? It's Satan. Revelation chapter 12 Satan accuses God's children, and right as he's being defeated, and the world is rejoicing when this reviler goes down, listen to what they say. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So we know who we're talking about, right? And then he calls him the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Did you know that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have placed your faith in him, Satan right now is accusing you before the Father. He's accusing you. And he doesn't have to lie about it either. All he has to do is say, did you see the way Mike treated Miss Cade last night? Yeah, can you believe that? You saved him. He doesn't, have to, he doesn't have to lie about us. All he has to do is point out the obvious weaknesses that we have. Did you see Heath? He ate like half a gallon of ice cream last night just for fun. He was eating like he was mad at it. God, did you see that? What kind of self-control is that, you know? And so <clears throat> Satan slanders us. He picks out the worst parts of us, and he constantly brings them up to the face of God. You died for that? You want them with you? Satan does that. So when we accuse one another and we are slandering one another, we speak evil of somebody else, we are doing Satan's work for him. We are doing the will of Satan. We don't want to do that. There was a group of people in Jesus' day who did that called the Pharisees. In John 8, Jesus had some tough words for him. He says, you are of your father, the devil. How could Jesus tell whose children Satan was the father of? They have a genetic marker that's a trait characteristic of both Satan and his kids. What is it? He says, your will is to do your father's desires. And so when what Satan does characterizes our life, and in this case, accusing the brethren, it is then that we are behaving most like Satan, the devil. We don't want to be like that. We don't, want to be, we don't want to have his DNA running through us. So Peter urges us, on the contrary, don't do that, but on the contrary, instead of running people down, don't just say nothing. You know, Mom always said, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Well, Jesus will go one step further. Through Peter, he's going to write, 
On the contrary, don't just not speak evil, but he says, rather, bless them. Bless is the word eulageo, a good word. We get the word eulageo, sounds like the word eulogy if you've been to a funeral. A eulogy is not the time where you get up and say, well, that no good something or other. Glad he's in the dirt. We don't say things like that. In fact, it's probably, it's really offensive to speak evil of the dead, isn't it? It's highly offensive to us. Can I tell you something that's even more wicked? It's speaking evil of the living. It's when we don't eulogize one another and we speak evil of the living. The dead, it's, you're not going to hurt them any more than they're already hurt. But yet we get more offended that you speak evil of the dead than we do of the living. God says otherwise. When we, instead of accusing one another and reviling one another, instead he says, bless them, speak a good word, eulogize. It doesn't mean you have to love everything about the person. Every funeral you've been to, did you love everything about that person? That person never hurt you? But you didn't stand up and say the evil things about them, did you? Because it isn't right. And so God is telling us to eulogize people. Choose one good thing about them and focus on that. Choose one good thing that they've done. Focus on that. That's what it means to bless one another, to, to share what is good, what is edifying about them. Verse 10 says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now this begins a lengthy quote from Psalm chapter 34. And he asks us a question. He says, if you, wanted to, if you desire to love life and see good days, is there anybody here who doesn't want that for their life? Anybody want to not love life? Anybody want to see bad days instead? You know, you're just kind of this Eeyore type where the whole world is just, you know, Winnie the Pooh is just living his best life here and Tigger's bouncing around, he's having fun and Piglet's just confused, not sure why he's there. And, but then you have this Eeyore type and no matter what's happening, you could be at Christopher Robin's birthday party and old Eeyore is just gonna be, well, it's probably gonna rain. You know? It's just always something negative. You can take the most beautiful scenario and you'll find something negative to say and Eeyore is just focusing in on that. And we all have a little bit of Eeyore in us, don't we? You know, I came to a realization one time as a kid as I was reading Winnie the Pooh. Christopher Robin was the only human in these stories. And he's walking around with all these stuffed animals. And so when these animals are talking to one another, is it, does it not relate then that this is really an interaction of Christopher Robin, Christopher Robin dealing with his own interpersonal demons? I think so. You got this boy and he's just having, he's playing out all these emotions in his thoughts and his heart. And so we all have a little bit of Eeyore in us, but we have to counsel Allow the Holy Spirit, the little, the Holy Spirit to kind of speak on behalf of what is true, what is good, what is right, what is just, and what is positive, and to counsel our hearts against negativity, because we all have a potential for negativity in our hearts, every one of us. Every one of us, we brought something to church we don't like. We have some pain. And yet David would counsel his own heart in Psalm 42, 5, he says, why are you down, cast down my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God for I shall again praise him. Peter says, if you want to love life, it means that you're happy to be alive. Are you happy to be alive today? Can people tell by looking at you? you know, or do you look like you just paid your taxes when you come to church? You know, are, do you look happy to be alive? You know, that's what Peter says. He says, do you want to love life? Do you want to just be glad to be alive? And then he says, do you want good days? That's what happens to you during your days. During your days. Do you want good things to happen to you? Do you want to be glad you're alive? He says, if you want to be those things, you've got to be a certain way. He says, you have to keep your tongue from evil. You have to keep your lips from speaking deceit. 
He commands us to keep our tongues. It's a word that means to stop. But more important, it means to stop something from doing something it wants to do. Does your tongue like to say things, even negative things at times? You feel justified, don't you, when we do that? We want to say something. A little biology trivia here. What's the only muscle in your body that's not attached on two ends? It is your tongue. Everything else, it's attached to different pieces, and it pulls arms together so that you can theoretically work out and do things like that. The tongue is just kind of flapping loose in the wind, and the only thing that stops it on the other side is the Holy Spirit within us to say, you know what, I'm going to prevent this tongue from saying everything that it feels like saying. That takes self-control. It's, it's an evidence. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Number three, unity is also what we do. Have you ever noticed that whether you're a unified family, a unified church, or a unified work environment, have you ever noticed that it doesn't happen accidentally? It doesn't happen by accident, does it? It takes intentionality. He says, he says that we don't arrive at being a melting pot by accident. This is intentional. She's not just trying to get me to quit early. <laughs> I assure you. It's not a bad idea, though. Or she always there. I thought it was April. Theron has given me a hint, folks. It's time to get out. It's not that easy. Well, being a melting pot is not just a, it doesn't happen by accident. He says we have to turn away from evil. It means to swerve, to avoid colliding with something that's dangerous. To swerve from evil means we have to know what evil is to begin with, don't we? Is it evil to gossip? Nobody wants to say yes. <laughs> is it evil to gossip? It is, isn't it? I can give you a hundred verses. Proverbs 16 says a perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. Is it evil to complain? The Bible says it is. I can give you a hundred verses. Got you one right here. We put not Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor do we grumble as some did and were destroyed. Grumble is just a, a Greek word that means to, it's, a, it's onomatopoeia. It means it's, it's spelled like it sounds. You just... Go Guzmos. No, 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 no good Theron. I can't believe he's trying to get me off the stage. You know, we don't do that. The Bible says God destroyed people for that, so we have to recognize it as evil. Is it evil to sow discord? Sowing discord means I've got a discordant thought in my heart. You hear the notes that Theron's playing right now. They sound nice together, don't they? In fact, some of you, it's lulling you into a nice little sleep, right? We got the temperature set just hot enough that you're tired, and he's lulling you out. You know, these, these chords, they sound beautiful. A discord is when there's a note that doesn't sound alike. It goes against it. You're not hearing a lot of that right now, but if I were to get on the piano, it would. Proverbs 6, 6 to 9, 16 and 19 says, There are six things the Lord hates and seven that are abomination to him. He says, one who sows discord among brothers. If God says he hates something, he calls it an abomination. That's not something God likes. Sowing discord is one of those. Sowing discord is when we have a discordant thought in our head. Everybody's going one direction. Everybody's playing nice together. And you get one or two people, and they're just taking discordant seeds. And they're like, what? You're not sad about this, Mark Renfro? Here. And we throw out our negativity. And we hope that Mark gets as mad as I do. What? Fred Boggs? I'm going to have to throw a lot of seeds at him before I get him mad. You know, you're not mad about this. You should be. Rob Queen, you're not upset about this. You're, here, let me throw some negativity. I hope it plants in your heart and grows into a negative plant. God says he hates it. It's abomination. Because what you hear over here with Theron is a church in harmony. Theron's trained on piano for a lot of years, and you got 10 fingers all going at the same time. You got two feet. It's like a one-man band. 
and he's just playing and it sounds beautiful. And when you hear it, you don't hear a lot of times any just one note, do you? You, you? All you hear is this beautiful symphony, this beautiful, these chords taking place. And that's what a chord is. These are notes that when they're played together, they sound good. Discord is a note that you play that doesn't sound good. So theoretically, if I were to come over here and join Theron at the piano, Theron's making good music. What's a discordant note? Anybody hear that? <laughs> what were you focusing on that whole time? Were you focusing on Theron's music? You're focusing on my discordant note, just coming in and just... Does that beautify this? Do you appreciate that discordant note? What does it do? It ruins the whole piece. And yet sometimes in the church, we can get something discordant within us and we just come in and we play our discordant note. And it destroys the symphony of God, doesn't it? Thank you, Darren. You're not gonna get me off the stage that easy. Um, nice try though. That's what a discordant note is. It's when everybody in the church, 10 fingers and two feet, and we're playing nicely together. And you don't just single out any one person. You hear the beauty of music, and it's a joyful place to come to. And that's what the church is meant to be, people working in harmony, not playing the same notes, not uniformity. Theron didn't just play a single key, did he? He played chords. He played a lot of notes together. And that's the church. We're different. We're nothing alike but we work together intentionally, harmoniously. I promise you, Theron did not do this by accident. It was an intentional effort and work to live in a harmonious and a uh, harmonious way. And so all I'm asking is, friends, don't choose to be the discordant note in the symphony of God. Amen. Let's work together in a harmonious way. You don't have to agree. If you don't agree with something, what do you do? You gossip, no, no, no. If you disagree, what do you, what do, you do? You stand up and you shout. No, that's not what we do. What do we do? Matthew 18, you go to them privately and you have a constructive conversation. You ask questions and you build understanding. Matthew 5, I know that they're upset with me. I still initiate it and I go to them and I build understanding. What if they don't do what I ask? That's not the point of confrontation, is to control people. The point is to create understanding and then we trust God with the outcome. That's how we build unity within the church. No wonder Peter tells us to turn away, to swerve from these things like you would a drunk driver who pulled into your path. You swerve from discord. You swerve from slander. Rather, in verse 11, he says, let him seek peace and pursue it. Peace is the end goal here. It's the opposite of war and dissension. He says it's something we seek for. We hunt it down, not like your kid looking for a lost shoe, but the kind of seeking, this, this word seek describes what Herod did in looking for Jesus. He turned the country upside down. He killed all the kids two and under to find Jesus. That's the kind of effort, he says, we apply toward building peace. Like Romans 12, 18 says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with the people who are like you. Nope. With the people who are unlike you too, right? With all men. Live at peace with all men. Verse 12 gives us the reason why. Why should we bother with peace? Why are we spending so much time talking about peace and being a melting pot as a church? Well, Peter gives us a motivator here. In verse 12, he says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. That's how God is. The hand of God is upon you. His eyes are on you. His ears are open to you. He's responsive to you. He's blessing your life in special ways that God does when people live righteously according to his word. 
He says, but the face of the Lord is against those that do evil. His idea is this. Why should I not be sinning with my tongue? Because God is watching you and God is listening. It's supposed, when you know that your father is watching and listening, does that change your behavior? It's supposed to. I remember being like you, as a, you know, some of you guys, little kids. We don't have a lot of little kids here, but when I was a little kid, we didn't have children's church, and I had to sit uh, up here in the big church. And even as I got older, I didn't have good church habits, and so I would sit like in the first few rows away from my parents. They would sit in the back with nine kids, and me and Matt Hansen would sit up like three rows from the front. Stupidest thing we ever did. If you're going to cut up in church, don't do it in front of your parents. But we did. We sat up there, and we would draw things on the bulletin out of boredom, and we're just kind of laughing and joking. Once in a while, we'd draw something really, really funny. You know how it is. Everything's funnier in church. And then I would notice myself laugh out loud, and then I knew I got busted, and I would kind of sneak a look over my shoulder, and I would see my dad, and he's glaring at me. His face is not up there at the pastor. His face is on me like a predator. (laughs) His face is upon me. And Approaching 50 years old, I can still see my dad looking at me with that stern, you're going to get it, look. And it still causes me to repent like a Benedictine monk. (laughs) That's what the look of the father is supposed to do with a child. When he's upset, when he is displeased with your behavior, it's supposed to cause us to sit up straight and to get right and be on our best behavior. Peter says, that's why you try hard. Because God is watching you. And God is listening to what you say, even in private. And if that is not a sufficient motivator to change your behavior, it might be because you're a neighbor kid and you're not his. My, my friend Matt Hansen did not care that my dad was upset. He did not change his ways. I would have to elbow him in the ribs to stop making me laugh because I was going to be the one to get it, not him. And so Matt was not afraid of my dad. I was afraid of my dad because I'm related And so if knowing that God sees and hears what we do does not change us to walk rightly and to speak well of one another and to speak harmoniously, behave in a harmonious way, friends, I urge you with all the compassion that I have, search your heart because that preaches against your conversion. God's children love peace. Why? Because it's an evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is what? Love, joy, and peace. These are things you won't find in a dissenter's heart. They are evidences that the Spirit of God is in you, though. And so I preach with all the compassion in my heart. I don't want anybody to go to hell, especially not least of which people who have been to church all their life thinking they're good with God, but they look nothing like him. Praying a prayer, being baptized, being a member of a church does not save you. What saves you is being converted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fear of God that causes you to change your life because his eyes and ears are upon you. As I was watching another animal documentary this week, I do that, um, and I'm closing with this illustration, I promise. The, I saw there was a couple of these male antelope, and they were button heads. You know how they do. The males are always competing for control of the herd. And so they're button heads, and two of these guys, antelope, they kind of got their horns locked, and they could not get them apart. They were so busy fighting each other and fought for so long, they couldn't stop fighting, and it just... They were just tangled on each other. And the crazy thing was, as I looked in the background, and if you looked in the bushes, all of a sudden you saw a leopard, and his face just kind of, you know how cats do. Cats are terrifying, even your little house cats. They would kill you if they had the ability. <laughs> you're, you're laughing because you got a cat at home. Um, so this cat, he just kind of looks, and he sees these guys, and I'm like, uh-oh. And these guys, at this point, they're trying to get apart, and they just can't. 
And they've got so busy button heads and fighting it, they don't realize that there is danger upon them. And I'm not even talking about Satan approaching the church. He does that too. God himself says that he is the face that opposes you like that leopard with these guys. Can God shut down a church if it's not unified? First sermon series I preached here was in Revelation. And he talked to these churches and warned them, if you don't change your life, I will remove your lampstand. I will shut your church down because a church has one purpose, and that's to glorify God and get the gospel out into our community. And if you won't do that, I'll shut you down and put people in your church that will. And that is how we unify. We unify around a document, and we unify around a mission. Friends, this is why I encourage you, and I say this not to be condemning to anybody. I, I beg of you, Let's join together and let's live up to our church's name. We're called Unity Baptist Church. You know what that means? It means when people come here, they expect us to be the opposite. I'll be honest. You name a kid Christian, you know he's going to the principal's office. You know, you come to a church like Unity and you see that name, and you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Friends, let, let's convince people that the Spirit of God is here and that they will know us by our love. Do this because the eyes and the ears of our Father are watching us. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today that as we study your word, as we talk about what unity is, Lord, our hearts all break because, God, each one of us have broken these before. Each one of us has come to places where we're negative, we're upset, we're offended, we get hurt, and all of us have broken these laws, myself included, where I've said things about people I shouldn't have. I didn't go to that person. I talked about people, and God, I repent of that before you. You desire for people to come into a church and to know us by our love. I pray that people will see that at Unity Baptist, that they will see that this is a church that truly lives up to its namesake. God, help us to remember that your eyes and ears are upon us. And God, that even no matter what I think, if your word says something is sin, it is sin. Help us, to, as Peter says, to swerve away from those sins of the tongue, from reviling against one another. Help us to be of the same mind, unified around a mission and around a document that tells us about you and how we can approach you. Help people in this community to see that we are your children by the love we show them and the love that we show one another. Bless us in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. 